I'm on. Can you guys hear me? I can't hear me, so if I shut off, I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, I'll just keep on talking. Hope you guys can follow me on. All right. So we're in the second week of our series called Baby or Not, He's Still the King. He's Still the King. Um, so we, we, we were talking last week about Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. We're going to just highlight those two verses and then just bridge off to other verses talking about the coming of Christ and the Emmanuel, God with us, and how important that is in our lives. But as we're looking, and as we looked at verse 6, we're still in verse 6. We're talking about the names, the names that were mentioned from Isaiah, the prophecy. We talked quickly last week about the mighty counselor and that Jesus is our way maker. This week we're going to talk about mighty God and everlasting father. There's some been some controversial uh, talk about that particular phrase or the two names that brought together as a title, Everlasting Father, because some would think that it was just talking about God. Some scholars believe that Isaiah was talking about God the Father, but ideally he's talking about the Son, the Messiah to come, the Davidic King. Unlike human, others who have been on earth, he is the one who's coming as the God-man, the 100% deity God. And so Everlasting Father, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we're coining those two together, bringing those four names that are coined together as two titles. And so, so we're going to entitle this week, Jesus is our warrior. Now, when you think about warrior, some of us would think about modern day movies or even some movies from the past. Uh, we would think about what does it mean to be a warrior. And the word mighty we're going to talk about actually lines up with hero. And I thought about it and I said, you know, what would it look like if we talked about heroes and villains? Well, we know some of these so-called movies that we've watched over the years and the Star Wars saga that has happened for many years. It's in the 70s and now in the early 2000s and coming into now the 2015 and on, Star Wars had Obi-Wan Kenobi as a hero, um, Luke Skywalker as a hero, Princess Leia as a hero, Han Solo as a hero, but the nemesis, the common nemesis before them was, yeah, Darth Vader. How many guys like Star Wars? Raise your hand. Some of you. Okay, some of you don't even really care. How about Avengers? About Avengers. Yeah, I like some Avengers. Okay. All right, so Avengers. I love the Hulk. He's a hero. Depends, though, which version are you going to see in which movie. Uh, Captain America, Thor, Iron Man. Sad to see him in Endgame to pass away. Um, but you see all of these heroes that are listed there, and then at the end you see one nemesis. And who's that nemesis? Thanos, all right, okay, some Avenger fans out there. How about Justice League? You have Superman, you have Batman, you have Wonder Woman, you have Aquaman, you have Flash. I don't know the other guy, I didn't look him up. But who was that common nemesis? No one knows, all right, Steppenwolf, okay. Then you have Superman versus who? Yeah, all right, Batman and Robin versus who? Yeah, all right, Wizard of Oz, Dorothy versus who? The Wicked Witch of? There you go. All right. 
It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey versus the Potter Man. All right, can't stand Mr. Potter. Snow White versus the Wicked Queen. Rocky versus, that's right, or Clubber Lang, Mr. T. All right. Frodo, there we go. All right, help me out here. But all of them had a nemesis, had an enemy. And those who worked together didn't work against each other. They worked with each other against a common enemy. But they were heroes with superpowers being able to overcome their enemy. Together, working together. If you watch Justice League, which I happen to like Justice League as well. Growing up, I used to watch the cartoons. And uh, watching the movie was kind of cool. But... When you think about, when you're thinking about like particular um, characteristics of a hero, it said there's 10 qualities I looked up in an article, and they had Thanos there to overcome him. But one particular one that came out to me when it said three of them out of the 10 said patience. I enjoyed this article even though it wasn't a Christian article. It says a key personality trait for any hero is patience. Because change is not always easy, not immediate. Standing up for what you believe and a worthwhile effort. But continuing to do so, even when you don't feel as though progress is being made, is a heroic action. In a world of dwindling attention spans, instant gratification, the constant battle for our time and emotional capital, being able to remain patient and steadfast in your beliefs and efforts can be a rare and heroic thing. I, this is not even Christian. It just happened that I come across this. But what is so amazing is that it's true. There's courage. There's obviously humility. There's other characteristics. But patience is one that stood out to me when I was reading that article. Because in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, King Ahaz didn't have patience. When he was confronted, as I said last week, He's, here he is, the king of Judah. He's been told in Isaiah chapter 7 that there is to be coming a 65-year a, a prophecy in 670 B.C., a coming of a people who will be dealt with by God and discipline because of their sin of idolatry. And their sin of idolatry is what led to that. And it would call what we would know today as history as the Syrian captivity of the Israelites. And when Israel and Syria joined forces to fight against Assyria, King Ahaz refused to join the alliance. He didn't have patience. He wanted an immediate fix. And he saw that the Assyrian Empire was strong to overcome their so-called friends up in the north. And the northern kingdom prepared to dethrone King Ahaz. However, he says, I'm not going to allow it to happen. Even Isaiah 7, 9 words that I mentioned last week about believe and stand firm, and he didn't. He wasn't patient. He didn't believe, he didn't stand firm. And it was mentioned twice because he had to stand firm because he was one of the Davidic kings. And the house of David was, was to be established, as we know in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, because it was a prophecy that says, your house and your throne will endure and stand firm forever through this so-called Messiah who's to come. This unlike human form, this 100% God, but yet 100% man. And so the question was, 
will Ahaz trust the Lord for his way, or will Ahaz trust the Lord or trust himself for his way? See, that was the bottom line. And Ahaz decided to go his own way. That's why if you look at Isaiah chapter 7, if you want to open up your Bibles just for a quick moment, chapter 7, verses 10 through 13, as I mentioned last week, just for review, he states that Ahaz refused to ask for a sign. Therefore, refusing God's sign is however God provided a sign. He refused it of a promise for him. And so he goes, well, if he's going to refuse my help, because God said, test me. He says, no, Lord, I'm not going to test you. But God said, test me. I'm inviting you. Test me. And he said, no. So the Lord said, okay, I'm still going to give you a sign. Because I am God, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign is this son, this Davidic son. And so it's important to see the coming of God in form of man. The coming of God is Emmanuel, God with us, promising that even though you don't believe Ahaz, that I am with you, I am bringing someone who will be my son, who will be a Davidic king that will live and will be established forever. And so in verse 14, as we understand in chapter 7, is in Matthew 1.23, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment if you look at prophecy. Chapter 8 would bring you a near fulfillment, but, but moving on 700 years prior to Jesus' birth. And notice that Jesus or God did not even make reference to when he would be born. We just know that looking back in the scriptures. And so we see that God has made it possible, and he's established that. So Ahaz decided to go his own way. Why did he go his own way? Because as I mentioned last week in Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, it's highlighted very clearly that he heard a voice, Isaiah, and here's what it says. Go and say to his people, God told him, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Meaning they shut themselves off from God because of their sin. Their sin, they weren't able to hear God. Their sin, they were able to just listen and see where God was at work. They were so involved in their own thinking, so involved in their own way, they couldn't see God at work. They were focused on themselves. He says, make the heart of these people dull and their ears heavy. Meaning, God's saying, if you want to continue to live in your own way and continue to sin, I will deal with you and discipline you, and you will not be able to hear, and you will not be able to see why I'm at work. And he goes on, lest they see their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. Meaning God's calling them back through his truth, saying, come back to me, return to me. That's a common statement. That's a common plea from God to his people in the minor prophets. Return to me. Repent. Confess your sin and return to me. And so we see this, that even in chapter 9, verse 6, is for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And that's what we see, that God has given this son, this son to come, this name, this name that is above every name. That every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So Jesus is the way maker, but Jesus is our warrior. And that's what we see in these coming words. We see that the word mighty God actually means vigorous, manly, hero. Referring to God as the God of the heroic force. 
So here is God in his heroic force. He's a warrior. He's one who defends, who fights on our behalf. I love Psalm 24, 8. It says, who is the king of glory? Fred Hammond sings a wonderful song. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. That's who is the king of glory. When we see God as a warrior, we know the glory of God is present. And when we understand the son of God, the mighty God, the glory of God is present in the baby who is born. We see that in chapter 1, John. We see that he's dwelt among us in form of man, God, man, deity, incarnate Christ. The glory of God, his full presence. That's when we see the glory of God in mighty in battle. Preparing for the king in his glory. That's what Psalm 24 is talking about, the second coming. Preparing him to come through the gates. To break down the gates and allow the king to come in. Because he's the king. And we want to set up a place for the king. The millennial kingdom is coming. He has to come. And when he comes, he's present with his glory. But he's given us his glory through his son. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the glory of God in us. But when the glory of God is not shown in us, it's because of what? What happens? We grieve and quench the Spirit of God because sin comes into our lives. And then the glory diminishes. The glory dims. Because God is saying, I want my glory to shine through you. You take residence. The Holy Spirit lives in you. I take residence in you. You're the church. You're the people, my people. And so Jesus, our warrior, is one who fights on us, and he delivers us. So the promise of the return of Christ is is evident. But as we know, this promise is yet to come. Is Jesus still the warrior today? Do we believe that he's fighting on our behalf? How does he fight? Does he fight for our good? Or does he fight through and according to his truth? See, because we have the perspective that God is always fighting for us, then we have to ask the question, is it about us? See, God with us is not about us. God with us is about him and his glory. And so if it's because of him and his glory and he's fighting on our behalf, what is he fighting for? For our way? Is he fighting so we get our way? Is he fighting so we can make sure no one's going to stop us from getting our way? We're going to get our way. (laughs) When it comes in a marriage or in a relationship with a child, when it comes to a job, when it comes to anyone in your family, you come into church, which way are we looking for? The people of God coming together, do we have a common nemesis? Or are we fighting to get our way? See, because the word of God is clear. Jesus is our warrior. And he delivers us through. But what does he deliver us through? First, through the truth of God's word, not our ways. Through the truth of God's word and not our ways. Look at John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. We know that's the coming of Jesus. Read this with me. It says, and the word became flesh. We understand the word is with God. The word is with us. But the word is God. Became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his what? Glory. The glory as the only son from the father. Full of what? Grace and truth. 
So grace and truth is what God stands for. He gives us grace so we can know his truth. And when we know his truth, we submit to the truth. And when we submit to the truth, we need grace. And grace is unmerited favor as we understand. That means we don't deserve anything that we receive. So when we want our way, we're saying, God, I deserve this. But God's saying, I'm not going to give it to you your way. It's about my glory. It's about my will. And when you submit to the truth, then we understand. And, when we, and, and what's beautiful about God is he gives us grace. So when we do go our own way, not if, but when we do go our way, own way, and when we slip and we fall, we unintentionally go our own way, God lovingly comes back and saying, come to my truth. And when we see his truth and his glory and his presence, then what do we do? We bow down. We bow down. Joshua chapter 5, we understand that too. When Joshua saw the commander of the army, the presence of God, and what did he do? He was in his presence and he bowed down to worship. It was what we would understand a theophany or possibly a Christophany. But he bowed down and he saw the presence of God. And see, we have to understand that grace and truth came through whom? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It says, that's why John bore witness in verse 15 about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And it says, for his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That's an abundance of grace. In our sanctification, we need grace. Amen. Amen. So we need grace upon grace upon, because it says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God because they would die. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, he came, as it says in verse 14, he came in flesh and dwelt among us. See, it's not about us. He dwelt among us for his purpose, for his glory, for his will, for his honor. It's all about him and for him and through him. And see, that's what we have to understand with Jesus, the truth. God always works through his truth, not our ways. Because dwelting among us means a tabernacle. And Jesus now, we who are the church, we today are the ones in which God tabernacles in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he tabernacles in us. That's why I love when 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 16, it says this, I hope to come to you soon. Paul was talking to Timothy. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. So right there it tells us that the church and how we behave, we submit to the truth because we are the church and God who dwells in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we submit to the truth because the Father is truth, Jesus is truth, the Holy Spirit is truth, thy word is truth, sanctify them by, their, by your truth and the truth will set you free. And so with this, the truth, the church stands upon the truth of the word of God in his presence. 
verse 16, it says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. This is how we conduct ourselves. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the doctrine. Manifested in flesh, revealed to us, made known to us. See, our call is that we're to know God, to enjoy him through his son Jesus. We're not to be in the know. We simply need to know him. And when we know him, we'll make him known to others. When we experience his presence, we'll make him known to others. See, that's why the truth is so important. I love Ephesians 6, 14. It says this, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of what? Truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. See, the word stand is in the air is passive, which means we stand in what's already been established for us. We don't stand in our own ways. We don't stand to get our way. We stand in him for his way, for his glory, for his honor, for his will. That's where we stand. And when we do, we rest knowing that we stand firm and we're girding ourselves up in the core right here, the belt of truth that holds up our, our core, holds up our pants, holds up and strengthens us here. Some of us have a stronger core than others, and some of us have where we can withstand some things. Some of us, are, our cores are a little bit weaker, but in all of that, the truth is what holds us up. And God, he delivers us through his truth. And so it's important to understand that. Now, how do we understand that even from a theological standpoint? Well, let me just share something with you from a, an attribute of God. See, divine impassibility is an attribute of God. And this is what it means. It means that God is not moved or drawn by emotion. His decisions are based on the truth. Unlike us, choices God cho cho chooses, God's choices are not influenced by surprises from exterior forces. So sometimes we're moved by other people's emotions. Not always a bad thing, but we're moved, and our decision-making is changed by the emotions around us. God doesn't work that way. Does that mean that's, that he's emotionless? No. It doesn't mean that. Some would think that God in his impassibility would not care to think about people suffering and their pain and their agony. No. God's just not moved in his choices during their suffering and their pain and their agony. He's moved by his truth. Because he is truth. He can't do anything less than that. But here's the thing. When his people are suffering in pain and agony, what he does, God's people are hurt. The Lord comforts and offers comfort and peace through his truth. The word of God in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing. That's how he works. That's how God is at work. Share it another way. God doesn't deliver us or defend us based on what we think is fair or not. His justice is based on truth. When we hurt, someone attacks us. I just want to share this with you. When we want to put them on trial. So when someone hurts us and attacks, we want to put them on trial. So if someone attacks me, I want to put them on trial. I just want to say, you know what, Lord, look what they've done to me. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. It goes a long list, right? And so you put them on trial, and we become our own lawyer. And defending ourselves in front of the divine judicial court before the Father. 
We approach the bench with Jesus defending the other party, the one who attacked me. Jesus is, if it's a brother or a sister, Jesus is defending them, and I'm over here trying to defend myself. But Lord, they attacked me. Jesus is like, yeah, but they're one of mine too. And so, but, but this is not right. This is not fair. They attacked me. And here we're in front of that judicial court. I'm in front of that judicial court. Let me put me up there. We approach the bench. And Jesus is ready to defend not just the other party. He's ready to defend me. But I choose not for him to defend me because I want to prove that I was mistreated. And so I say to Jesus, no, I got this. I don't need you to defend me. And Jesus is saying, I'm not defending this one over you. I'm defending both of you. Will you take me as your advocate, your paraclete? I will stand in defense for you to the Father. And see, what happens is when there's a fight and there's something going on with believers, our fight is not against flesh and blood, the Bible says. Our fight is against the common enemy, Satan. That's where our fight is. Satan wants to destroy the church. He wants to pin blame on each other. God doesn't fight on behalf of one believer or the other. Satan wants us to believe that. We can say God is on my side because I'm right. Or God's on my side because this person is mistreating me. In a marriage, God's on my side because with he or she said mean words to me. (laughs) Sometimes the receiver of the attack could begin to manipulate and guilt trip the attacker. We can play that game, even in a marriage. I'm going to get back at my husband or wife by either confronting them aggressively or being passive aggressive. God doesn't take one side or the other. He calls all parties to return to his what? Truth. Truth. The word of truth. Because he presents it to us. When a person attacks another person, we should not fight back, but give that person to the Lord. Because if someone attacks me and I attack them, I'm in the same place. If someone shows unforgiveness to me and I show unforgiveness to them, we're both in the same place. But God's called us to forgiveness. God's called us to hand that person over. Jesus said it himself. First Peter, Peter said it himself about Jesus. He rightfully gave himself over to the Father and let him fight his own battle. Why? Why is it so? Because the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not ours to fight. When a believer is attacked, the other person should, is, is attacking God. Do we understand that we're, we're God's? We're bought with a price. When we attack someone else, we're attacking God. Do we understand that? Because they're bought with a price. So if I go back and attack them, I'm doing the same thing they're doing to me, and Satan's having a ball. That's disunity. That's disharmony. That's dissension. That doesn't create any unity. Satan loves it. He has a ball with marriages, with parents and children, with friends, family, churches. He has a ball. And people are hurt. And we just say, oh, we're the people of God and we're different? How are we being different? (laughs) See, God calls us to unity. He says, revenge is mine, says the Lord. Give them to me, I'll handle it. The battle's mine. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen God do work when I did that. I prayed for nine months when someone came after me and gave them to the Lord every day. 
and ask peace for that person. I prayed for peace for that person. God did an amazing work, and a pastor said, I've never seen that happen before. I said, yeah, it's wonderful when you give it to God. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. See, when God's people submit to his truth, his people have peace through Christ. That's why in Ephesians 6, 15, it says this, and his shoes are for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's our sureness, that our peace doesn't come from being right in the situation. Our peace comes from when we submit to God and let him fight on our battle. And when he fights our battle, he's not fighting to punish anyone. He's fighting for the fact that he disciplines us for the sake of love. That's what he calls us to, for unity's sake. See, I love Romans 8, verse 31. It says, what shall we then say these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? So when someone comes to attack us, we need to give them to the Lord. Because God is for us. And if we allow him to fight our battles, then he's for us. But we don't say, Lord, you give it to them, and you discipline them, Lord, and you spank them really good, Lord, and give them the belt. No. We say, God, we pray for peace in the name of Jesus because we have a common nemesis. His name is Satan. He hates the church. He hates God. He hates you and me because we belong to God. And we need to pray. How do you fight off the enemy? Through prayer, through submission. He hates when we submit. He hates when we confess our sin. He hates when there's unity. He does whatever he can to break up unity. He wants disunity. And he'll do it very subtly. That's why we're called to it. That's why I love Romans 8, 37 and 39. It says, no. He says, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation, we will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And that's what he's calling us to. Number two, Jesus, our warrior, delivers us, delivers us through our trials, not from them. And that's a promise. He delivers us. From our trials. We understand that we need to go through the trial, not get away from the trial. Because God wants to change us, conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And so the warrior is going to fight on our behalf, but when we go through it, he's going to fight on our behalf. But he's only fighting on our behalf for his good. I love Hebrews 4 14 and 16, because some would say, But does Jesus really know what I'm going through? Yes, he does. Listen to this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That is our Messiah. That is our Emmanuel, God with us. And then he goes on. It's the understanding that he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Grace. Because we have grace upon grace. He came and he dwelt among us grace upon grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So God doesn't want us to get away from the trial. He wants us to go through the trial because he wants to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Whenever it's tough and it's difficult and we're suffering and we're in pain and we're in agony, God is not remiss to say, you know what? I'm here for you. Just submit to my truth. Because that's where he works. That's where he delivers us. That's where he defends us. Through the truth. See, we got to understand, God is not out to get us, but is always with us. 
He's always with us. God reminds us. He gives us a constant reminder. Reminder, excuse me, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Lastly, Jesus, our warrior, defends us through affection and accountability. Through affection and accountability. That's where he delivers us and he defends us. The affection because God loves us. He's compassionate. He reaches out to us. We understand, too, in chapter 1, 14 through 18, talks about Exodus 34, 5, and 7. But what it does there is it talks about God's compassion for his people. But it's also his accountability. And God reminds us of how important that is because as an accountability, we have to be reminded that grace is not enabling. Grace is so that we can continue on in the journey. <laughs> if we don't have grace, we can't continue on the journey. Amen? No, you guys are not convinced. Hold on a second. Help me out a little. You guys believe that if we didn't have grace, could we continue in the journey? If we lived in the law, could, would there be any hope for us? No, we need grace, right? So what does that mean? What does that mean? That means when we sin often every day, we have the grace of God. But there's accountability. It's not like we're getting away with it. Because God will deal with us each individually if we believe that. And we should be praying for each other rather than attacking one another. So he goes on and says this, for, the, for in, in Exodus 34, 5 and 7, it says, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with them there, his presence, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I mean, there's an accountability. I even love when it says in Deuteronomy, verse 32, 4 through 6, it says, The rock, his, perf- his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And he goes on, they have, dwe- they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish, senseless, senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? See, that's what he's saying to the Israelites. God has got this affection for you. He's a father. He's fatherly. And we understand everlasting father, we understand that he's nurturing and caring, but there's an accountability as well. And that's important for us to understand because an everlasting father is one who's affectionate, but he holds his people truly accountable. Here's the affection that God shows in Isaiah chapter 40, 10 and 11. He says, behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Referring to the son to come. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. Watch this image. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That's the beauty of God. He's affectionate, but he's holding people accountable. 
that's what he's called us to. I mean, look what he said in Malachi, the same thing. Have we all, not all but one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? That's what he's talking about, a fatherly love. One who he holds his people accountable for, for all of our sins, but yet affectionately helps us through the trial and defends us. I mean, that's what the imagery is even in John chapter 10 of the shepherd. The shepherd who calls on a sheep, and the sheep know his voice. And yet all of that he endorses. The father endorses. It, it, it's a beautiful imagery again. It says, John 10, 25 through 30, it says this, I told you, Jesus answered them, he said, I told you and you did not believe me, talking to the Pharisees, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's safety. That's security. That's defense. God defends us. He snatched us up. He loves us. He calls us his sheep. He's affectionate. He carries us through. Sheep are the dumbest in the, in, in the fold. But yet in the dumbest animal in the fold, he's affectionate and loving and caring and nurtures them through it. He's over the pasture making sure that they're okay and draws them to himself. They hear his voice and they go close to him. God revealed this to me about a couple of weeks ago in my devotion. I just sat there and I said, Lord, I'm as dumb as sheep. I need to hear your voice. I need to understand so I can draw closer to you. Why can't I hear you sometimes? And he just said, it's because of sin. And I began to confess my sin. And I had a peace that came over me. And I realized that I just need to learn to hear his voice. And through it, God reminded me that he's here for me. He's here to defend his cause through me. He's taken his residence in me through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The tabernacle was set. I need to see that all he wants is a desired relationship. The father endorses the son, and the son endorses the father. There's a harmonious unity, one another in the trinity, and he's calling us to unity. He's not calling us to disunity and disharmony. We have one common nemesis, and the fight is not against each other. The fight is not against flesh and blood. The fight is against sin. And the only way we can see the glory of God in our lives is when we submit to the truth. And you know what submitting to the truth is? Confessing our sin. Submitting to the truth is realizing we need him. Humbling ourselves before him. Realizing that he'll lead us like a good shepherd, the chief shepherd. That's what he's called us. That's why he even prayed this. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. We have that glory. The glory of when he came here on earth, born in a manger, is the glory given to us through Jesus, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. He goes on, he says, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's calling for unity. 
fight is not against one another. The fight is against the enemy, our common nemesis. We have a hero who delivers us and defends us according to what? His truth. See, our fight is not against each other, but against our common enemy. The great warrior fights on our behalf, delivering, defending us for his truth. That's unity. We may not like it. We get frustrated. It hurts. It's painful. There's agony. But we have to come together for the sake of the, of the gospel. That's our warrior. He fights on our behalf. So you're going through a trial. And you're going through a difficult time right now. It could be someone in your family, someone in your immediate family, someone at work. Some, it could be a child. It could be someone here at church. I want to give you a moment. Because the warrior Jesus is fighting on behalf of the truth. I want to give you a moment right now. There's a person that you know in your heart that's just, it's just rattling. The name of that person just drives you crazy. I want to give you a moment right now to give that person to God and to pray for that person. All right? I want you to bow your heads right now because he's our warrior ready to fight on our behalf. Take a moment. You name him, him or her, and give that person over to the Lord. Father, thank you that you don't take one side or the other because your side is the truth. And I pray that today we will be reminded that you are a warrior and our everlasting father who fathers and nurtures us, who holds us accountable and, and you're truly affectionate toward us. I pray today, Lord, that as a warrior that protects us and has the power to do so, we pray that today we would rest in knowing that your truth will prevail and that you desire unity in your body because, Jesus, you prayed that to the Father prior to going to the cross. You asked that for your own disciples. We are your disciples. And so today, Father, may you bring unity among us moving forward for your honor and your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you. I wanted to um, ask uh, James and Elizabeth Schaefer to come on up for a membership presentation. They can come on up as they make their way up. Elizabeth and James have been involved in ministry uh, for many years now. Uh, he has been a pastor. They both, uh, they've been missionaries in other countries. Come on right up over here. I can't stand you guys right up over here. They have... He's been a pastor. He's been in the fellowship for some years now. Um, he has been a, a colonel chaplain in the military. He has traveled around the world 
has worked work with many dignitaries, and we're really grateful. But one of the things that I've gotten a chance to get to know both of you this past year is through our time together on uh, the, the, the Chesapeake Bay racial reconciliation team that we started, along with Pastor Irv and also Los, yeah, Los, affectionately known as Los, who was here to preach, Juan Carlos. And it has been a blessing to work with you. You have lovingly pushed us through it, and I'm grateful for that. Um, you have uh, lovingly ministered to us. You have shepherded us through this. Um, we're truly grateful for that. Your wife is sweet and kind and loving, and, and we're grateful for the fact that you've been attending here uh, for the past, I guess, six, seven, eight months or so, and you've been helping along with other things that we've been doing here, especially the Imagi Bay series. You were a huge help for us, especially for me, so we're really grateful. So um, today we wanted to take this moment and to welcome them in as new members here at Grace Church Waldorf. I'm just going to um, ask you just, just a question or two here. Um, if uh, James and Elizabeth, I want to just ask you, do you profess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, believing that he died on the cross, was buried and rose on the third day, for the forgiveness of your sins, and have you placed your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior? If so, may you answer, I have. I have. All right, amen. Now, you have met 